right, as our kids head out for Sunrise Kids Children's Church, I want to introduce our speaker to you. It'll be the third time for some of you, uh, the second time for others, and the first time for a lot of us here today. Uh, we're also going to be reading a bit of scripture here in just a moment, so if you want to go ahead and start finding Acts 16 in your Bibles, you can go for it. Uh, to those of you who were able to make it Friday and Saturday, you've already heard that our guest this weekend is a church planter in the St. Louis area where they planted a church called The Table about a year ago or so. You've heard about even that I might not would be your pastor if not for the, this particular guest. His name is John Simmons. And uh, to top that, I don't think I'd be half the pastor I am today if not for the seven years spent with him as a fellow associate pastor in Springfield, Missouri. It's just, I think we kind of lived out that iron sharpens iron thing a little bit, only I think I was the duller blade <laughs> to start with. And uh, so we, uh, we spent, had a lot of conversations about ministry and church, and it really uh, shaped a lot of what God has um, wanted to do through me since becoming a pastor, and so I'm thankful for John Simmons. But I want to tell you that you should, the real reason that you should listen today when John speaks is, uh, frankly, when it comes to stepping out in faith for the sake of the kingdom mission, he's earned the right to be listened to. There's not too many people I would say that of, but in a day and age where church planters are typically sought out by a, some sort of sending agency and, uh, and they ask for a whole bunch of money up front and are you going to take care of my family and, and I want to make sure that we have money to do ministry with and so forth before we agree to do this. John and his family simply heard the call of God and said, yes, Lord, we'll go. And so they left a comfortable, secure life behind. They went without a supporting agency. They didn't reject the advice or help of others, but they didn't need it either because they had the clear call of God sending them. So it was amazing to sit back Friday night if you were there and just hear the neat things that God has already done in just a year of ministry since they began in earnest planting this church. And it's neat that we have been able to be a part of that from an early stage and to partner with them in ministry and now to, to hear some of the fruit of that. But uh, rest assured that the fruit of that hasn't come without sacrifices for their family and without faith-stretchingly tough situations at times, no doubt. And they've put it all on the line for God. And that's why we should all listen today. Today, John continues on a message from yesterday, last night, and to get us all on the same page, we're going to read from Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, the regular print is page 1159. Picking up at verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. 
and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. And if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, we, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days and finally Paul became so troubled that he turned and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us so quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. And the officer reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed, and they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left.
God bless the reading of his word today as John comes to share with us. Well, how's everybody doing this morning? Had uh, some, some great evenings together, some very delicious meals and desserts. If you missed out on that, I am so sorry. I didn't miss out on that. Uh, our friendship with Neil and Julie goes back a, a long ways. And, um, you know, there were many times where we sat in each other's offices and um, talked about sports. Uh, we both are, are big sports fans of, uh, you know, obviously Neil's an LSU fan. Nobody around here, right? LSU fans anywhere? And, all right. <laughs> um, we uh, played softball together. We played basketball together. Uh, he even whooped me several times in a good game of ping pong. That's all we did in ministry. <laughs> I'm just kidding, everybody. Just kidding. We did a little more than that. Uh, I can tell you uh, first and foremost that uh, Neil is uh, very organized in his leadership. And that is one thing that we needed at LifeQuest uh, when he was there. Um, if we have a little joke going between uh, me and the, the senior pastor who's there. That uh, Even if things are just a, a quarter of an inch off, Neil's going to know about it. <laughs> so he has a, a very uh, a great eye for excellence in ministry. And one thing that uh, we found that uh, Neil was exceptionally gifted in is um, conflict resolution, as a matter of fact. Um, if there was uh, conflict in the church, Neil wasn't running from that. He wanted to make sure that it was settled and ready to move on. And a lot of pastors don't have that gift. A lot of pastors, there will be um, conflicts that just go on forever and ever in a church because a pastor is never willing to say, hey, let's, let's come together and let's, let's see eye to eye on this. And, and Neil did that, um, and uh, he's it's just incredible. And uh, it's so amazing just to partner with him. Uh, we did several things together. One of the things that we did together was we went on vacation once together. Uh, we went to Angel Fire, New Mexico. And uh, it was Neil's old stomping grounds from, uh, you know, he had been there several times with his family. And, and he said, hey, you guys need to come with us to Angel Fire. And so he had the whole vacation planned out. I think every single minute was mapped out and detailed. And, and uh, it was awesome. We were leaving at like 8 o'clock on a, I don't know, must have been a, a Monday morning or something. And, you know, uh, we were following him in our car. And he says, I know the way. Obviously, he knew the way. Except uh, as soon as we get to the interstate, Neil passes the exit for the interstate, like the on-ramp. And a man are like, well, where are we going? So we turn around and come back, and Neil passes the on-ramp for the interstate again. And then we turn around and come back. We finally made it onto the interstate. But uh, we were a little leery in following him from that point forward, because he can't even get on the interstate. <laughs> Just had to share that one. That was pretty good. But we've laughed together. Uh, we've cried together. We spent many times at an altar together, praying. And I can say I probably haven't spent more time praying with somebody else other than, than Neil. And that's a huge bond and a huge friendship. So, appreciate that. Thank you. Can we go forward now? 
All right, today we'll be talking about the financial gift. And to start off with, we're going to be looking at this uh, little thing of McBobber. You guys say thing of McBobber here in Louisiana? I don't usually say it either. Thing of a jigger here. Anybody know what this is? If it was smaller and about this big? This is a bushing. You know, uh, when I was a youth pastor in Lebanon and uh, before Amanda's grandpa had passed away, uh, he worked on a farm. Uh, he had uh, about 250 acres and uh, he had cattle. Um, he cut hay and baled it. And one day I went out to work with him on the farm and his baler was broken, uh, the machine that baled the hay. And it turns out that uh, this bushing on the baler was was broken. It had, had split, and, and he was needing a bushing. And so we're out on the farm. We're about um, 30 minutes from civilization, so we're not real far away from town, uh, but we're still out a little ways. And he has a little shop there out on the farm, and, and he began trying. He didn't have another bushing, so he began trying to make a replacement for the bushing. Uh, so he took a bolt, and he put it in his drill press, and uh, he began trying to drill out the threads so that he could create a bushing uh, that would cause this, the, the bolt on the baler to turn back and forth without binding up. Does that make sense? And so it's real small, uh, a real uh, small piece of metal, but it was important to the task. We had to have a bushing to get the baler back up and running. Um, so I'm just going to tell you, we spent over four hours trying to make a new bushing for this baler. We couldn't complete the task. So we ended up driving 30 minutes into town, went to the local hardware store, asked if they had the right size bushing, and they said, yeah, here it is. How much will that be? 75 cents. <laughs> we wasted three quarters of a day trying to make a piece of metal that was worth 75 cents. Now, see, there are times when uh, we, late, we waste a lot of time to save a lot of money, right? Especially, in, uh, you know, uh, some of us who have the, we've got to save, save every penny. Um, we've we've kind of got this mindset of um, money is worth more than time. And so sometimes we, we waste a lot of money or waste a lot of time to save a little bit of money. Now, the opposite is true of that as well. Um, sometimes we waste a lot of money to save a little bit of time, right? Uh, is it, I, I'm just going to ask, and, and you don't have to answer. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. Does anybody in here own like a 2014 Honda Odyssey? Okay, great. Perfect. Okay. Um, let's see. In 2014, the Honda Odyssey came out. Uh, if you'll remember the commercials, uh, there was um, I, there's like little toys all over the car, and then there was a spill, and then here comes Super Mom out of the background, and um, she pulls this vacuum attachment out of the van. Like the van has a vacuum in it, and she starts vacuuming up all the mess, and she's like Super Mom because of the Honda Odyssey. Right? You remember this commercial? All right. Well, um, the beginning price for a Honda Odyssey, the basic model version, was $29,000 at the time. Okay? $29,000. And each, there had, there's like each upgrade to the Honda Odyssey. Um, Well, the, um, the vacuum cleaner 
came in the ultra, ultra deluxe edition of the 2014 Honda Odyssey. Uh, You could get the Honda Odyssey ultra, ultra deluxe without the vacuum cleaner for $43,000. Okay? With the vacuum cleaner, $46,000. Must have been a Dyson, right? Okay, Um, they say that that is the most expensive vacuum cleaner in American history that's in the the Honda Odyssey. And my wife wants one. A lot of times, we spend a lot of money just to save a little bit of time. Now, you could buy, I just, uh, for my work, we just bought like a $70 shop vac, right? And you can just plug it into the wall and go in and vacuum your car for 70 bucks, all right? But I can guarantee for each of your faith promise partners, there is neither time nor money to spare. Each minute matters, and each dollar matters. And so last night, as uh, Pastor Neil read, uh, we talked about Paul and Silas going to Philippi. There they met Lydia and her family. They cast a demon out of a fortune-telling slave girl. They got beaten. They went to prison. And in prison, they started singing hymns and praying. And at midnight, there was a big earthquake Um, The the doors broke open and nobody left, but the jailer thought everybody left, so he was going to take his own life. And then Paul says, whoa, whoa, we're all here. And so then Paul and Silas uh, lead the jailer and his family to Christ and they get baptized And now you have these people who have committed their lives to the work of the gospel. They are committed to meeting together, to learn the will of the Father. And today we will see that they were committed to so much more than that. The church in Philippi. And if you'll open your Bibles with me, we're going to start at uh, Acts chapter 17. Are you all okay if we do a little Bible reading today? Sure hope so. It's a good place to read the Bible at in church, right? This is Acts 17. We're going to go through verse 4. It says, Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia. Man, that's a hard one. Apollonia. Okay. And came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And remember yesterday we talked about that Paul and Silas aren't just traveling. They're carrying something. What are they carrying? They're carrying Jesus with them. They're carrying the message of the God who came to a broken world and died for the redemption of their sins. They're carrying a message. It says, uh, where there was a Jewish synagogue, and as Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men. And quite a few prominent women. 
And so just the, we're going to kind of talk about timelines today. Uh, Paul and Silas, they left Philippi and then they arrive at Thessalonica. And uh, as you did not read here, I can tell you that Paul and Silas, they go to work. Like not just speaking about the gospel, not just preaching, not just becoming pastors, but they go to work like physical, hard Labor work. And now you're thinking, eh, that doesn't say that in there. Right? Who says, that doesn't say that in there? Okay, it doesn't say it right there. Um, But see, in Scripture, in your Bible, in the table of contents, there are these Acts is the the book that we were just reading from. And uh, if you go down here, uh, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and some say Hebrews. Uh, these were the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. This is the guy we're talking about. So at one point in time, Paul wrote a letter um, to the Thessalonians, to the church in Thessalonica. And this is where he is here in the book of Acts. So if, if you'll turn... If you want to in your Bibles, to 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10. And this is what uh, the Apostle Paul says. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow in the tradition they received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. And here he says, We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. And so you see here that Paul and Silas went to work. And and here in a minute we'll see in Acts chapter 18 um, that Paul's trade was a tent maker. That's how he made money. He, he built tents. All right, so we're going to continue reading now here in Acts 17, uh, verse 5. It says, But some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. Now, this is starting to sound very familiar. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Sound awful familiar, doesn't it, to our story yesterday from the town of Philippi. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Now it's getting more personal because now they're not just attacking Paul and Silas. Now they are just going after believers and this guy named Jason and some of the others. Says, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they are here disturbing our city too, and Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. So not only did it cost them time in prison, it cost them financial, a financial sacrifice to get out of jail. 
It says, that very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. Now, how did the believers know where Paul and Silas were? That's my question. Like, remember, everybody's looking for Paul and Silas so that they can arrest them. But that very night, oh, look who's found. It's Paul and Silas. Perhaps they were in hiding. Perhaps. It says, when they arrived, uh, when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, that sounds familiar again. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. But... When some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul on to the coast, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. Now stick with me for just a a few more here. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, see, Paul hasn't left his message. He is still carrying his message with him. They said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since He is Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't live in man-made temples. Do you know where Paul is standing? (laughs) He is standing in Athens. Do you know what's all around him? Four man-made temples built for gods who dwell inside these temples. And Paul is saying, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. And he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands 
everyone, everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by, by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so we're going to wrap it up here by reading the first five of chapter 18. It says, Then Paul left Athens. Oh, maybe not go all the way through five. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. See, told you, tent maker. Yeah. It says, Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Free up some space up here. All right. So we started with a timeline. Paul and Silas, they leave Philippi. Um, they head to Thessalonica. They get there. Uh, they go to the, the synagogues on the Sabbath, but then they get to work. All right. And then it's, uh, it seems like uh, the persecution, um, they, they established a group of believers. And then the persecution of Jason happened. They arrested him uh, because of Paul and Silas's absence. Uh, then uh, Paul and Silas are, are snuck out of town or ran out of town by the Jewish leaders, but then they leave a group of Christ followers behind, which include Jason and his household. And then they arrive at Berea, and then a group of believers are established, and then Paul is ran out of town by the same group of Jewish leaders who came from Thessalonica, came down to Berea, and then ran them out again. It says, um, but... Paul then is sent to Athens for protection, uh, but Silas and Timothy remain behind. But when Paul goes to Athens, he gives this famous sermon uh, of the unknown God, who is actually God the Creator. And then a group of believers are established, including Dionysus and Damaris. And then Paul goes to Corinth. And then he gets a job making tents. Six days he's working. He's making tents. But on the seventh day, where is he? He's in the synagogue teaching scriptures, reasoning from the scriptures, telling people about Jesus. And then he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and we know that they become believers. See, and then Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia. And then all of a sudden, we read that all of a sudden Paul quits his job as tent maker. And then he devotes all of his time to teaching the scriptures, to telling people about Jesus. Now, it seems that Silas and Timothy, they were able to bring something, something with them from Macedonia. 
What do you think it was? Why, why, what's the difference? Like Paul doesn't have any resources. In order to eat, he's making tents. But all of a sudden, uh, Silas and Timothy come down to where he is. And all of a sudden, he doesn't have to do that anymore. Why do you think that is? What do you think they brought with them? Support. They brought support with them. And, um, you know, if you remember yesterday, we talked about Lydia and her household. We talked about the jailer and his household. And we talked about this group of believers that has now formed in the city of Philippi. And in your scripture, you see here, there's a, a letter that's written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. It's called the Philipp- or Philippians. And today we're going to read out of that chapter 4, verse 15 through 20. And, and this is the Apostle Paul writing here. He says, As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. He says, no other church did this. This is Paul's second missionary journey. He has already established churches in several other locations around the the Middle Eastern area. Several churches. But Paul says, no other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, his very first city that he went to, you know, and and, uh, there where they arrested Jason, he says, you sent help more than once there. He says, I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And at this same, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from His glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now glory to God, our Father, forever and ever. Amen. Now it appears to me that Paul could quit his job and preach the gospel full-time now because of the financial gift that was given to the church, by the church in Philippi. When Silas and Timothy arrived from the region where Philippi is, they were carrying something other than the message of Jesus. They were carrying financial support so that Paul could do the work that only Paul can do. Isn't that amazing? One church was able to support the work here. It says, in fact, it appears that the first financial gift given to Paul and Silas came way back in Thessalonica. These are the people who came to the kingdom because of the financial gifts provided by Philippi. Now, let's just think about this for a minute. If Paul and Silas didn't have any financial resources and they had to have worked the whole time that they were doing anything, these people may not have come to the kingdom. But because of Philippi, they were able to do. Jason and his household and the other believers in Thessalonica, the believers in Berea, Dionysius, Damaris, and the believers in Athens, Priscilla, Aquila, and the believers in Corinth. Now, I will bet that uh, uh, you know any type of traveling costs money. And so Paul had to have a way to financially get to Athens. They had to get him there. Now, how did he pay for it? It appears that the church in Philippi helped support the trip.
Now, what if this is still how the gospel is spread today? What if this is how human trafficking is stopped in the coming years? What if this is how impoverished kids are fed, educated, and protected in the next decade or two? What if this is how churches are supposed to be planted in today's society? What if it is the responsibility of established churches to think outside of their own cities and look towards the global movement of Jesus? You know, this is what I love about the kingdom work of Cypress Street. For many years, you all have taken up the mantle of supporting missionaries and church planners. You all have seen a vision far beyond the borders of West Monroe. You know there is still great kingdom work to be done. And instead of running from it, you have financially supported the global work. There is no doubt in my mind it will be churches like yours that will reap and that you do reap the greatest rewards. You indeed are a selfless church following in the, sh- in the shoes of a selfless king. The work advances today because of you in Louisiana, in Missouri, in Tennessee, in California, in South Dakota, in Nebraska, in Arizona, in Canada, in the United Kingdom, in Turkey, in 19 countries across Latin America, in Guatemala, in Ecuador, in Panama, and in Peru. And you're helping to feed, educate, and protect children in over 27 countries around the globe. Now that is amazing. That's incredible. Can you like at least uh, clap that God has placed that burden on your heart? That is incredible. Clap with me. That is amazing. Now I know that there are days when it may seem unfair because other churches could be doing more. I've seen it. There are other churches who could be doing more. However, when I look at the church in Philippi, and when I look at the church here in West Monroe, I see a church that sees the big picture. A church that ponders both the consequences of not financially supporting the work and the rewards of supporting the work. You know, I distinctly remember the day last year It was January 14th of 2015. When I received an email from Pastor Neil saying that your faith promise committee had selected the table for a ministry partner. You see, it was on... uh, It was on January 12th. That was a Monday. I was at work. And um, when I decided uh, to take the plunge and become a church planter, I knew that I was going to have to get out of the office and go back to work. And uh, I have got some background in construction, framing. And whenever somebody would say, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to feed your family? I said, I don't know. I'm going to get a job as a framer because that's what I know how to do. And that's what I did. 
So I, I joined a construction crew uh, there in the St. Louis area. It was great for the first two or three months. We were building houses, but in the fourth month, we uh, moved on to start building some apartment complexes. And for the, the previous two or three weeks, um, I got designated to the roof crew. And these apartment complexes were three stories high, so by the time you got to the top of the roof, you were uh, way up there. <laughs> And I began to notice that I had to be very careful about the boards that I was stepping on and moving around uh, because I didn't put, place the boards that were under me. I didn't build the, the walls. I didn't build the floor joists that were under me. And so if you have somebody who's coming along who doesn't know what they're doing, who's building the, the floor below you or the, the, the ceiling joist below you and you step on one that's only got one nail on it, guess what? You're falling. <laughs> There's no other way to stop you. You're going. And so as I began uh, building, you know, helping with the, the roof structure, and I was you know, up all these heights, and I began stepping on stuff that I didn't feel uh, easy stepping on and was nailing stuff up, I just said, man, God, I just don't know how much longer I can do this. I know I'm here to plant a church. I know I'm not here to die. <laughs> and so on January 12th, it was a Monday, I was actually on the ground that day, but I was working with a crew who was uh, building, uh, building roofs over some garages. And the guy that I was throwing boards up to after I was cutting them, um, he was about uh, 10 to 12 foot up on a scaffolding. And uh, he reached like this to, to grab a, a level and he turned around and he stepped right off the scaffolding and he fell and hit his head face first. We were hard hats, but... It doesn't matter when you're falling from that distance. Hit his head right at my feet. And that's when I knew that I had to do something different. <laughs> After we called 911 and got him in the hospital, you know, and, and, and he turned out to be okay. But that was the last day that I worked on the framing crew. I came home that night and I said... <laughs> I was pretty shook up about that. I've been working in an office for 10 years, being a youth pastor. Been on the crew for about four months. And, you know, I didn't want my wife getting that phone call. And so I came home and I told Amanda, I said, I can't go back. I don't know what's next, but I can't go back. And so that day we began praying about what was next and we still didn't know and that was January 12th. And on January 14th we got this email from Pastor Neil that said, you guys, we're interested in being our ministry partner. So I was in between jobs and I felt that uh, because of this email the Lord was telling um, that we were in a place where we needed encouragement the most. And then the email came. You know, and then this was a great day of celebration for our team. It was a moment when we felt a great camaraderie with other believers. We felt like there was a network of people who cared about us. You all were the first church to say we believe in you. You were the first church to provide financial support for us. 
And that was huge. And so as, uh, as Pastor Neil comes up, I just want to say, thank you for being faithful to the calling that you have received. Thank you. This is our Faith Promise Pledge card. Um, the most important thing you need to know about this card is put your name on there. And then the line right above it, this is your total for the year, not monthly or weekly, your total for the year. And then the ushers will come and collect these. And Miss Pat down here, she's going to be tallying them all up. And I'm going to color as fast as I can <laughs> on the board. And we're going to try and fill it all up and maybe even exceed our goal of 20,700. All right, let's do a, a prayer before we have our time of pledging. Lord, thank you for filling our lives with blessings to the point that they're overflowing. Today is our chance to pour out those blessings to others around the world. I pray for the pledges we're about to promise. I pray that we would give generously, but also wisely. Please speak to our hearts and guide us today. Amen. All right, we've got a number. Hmm. How long can I hold you in suspense? Not 20, but $30,525. Thank you all so much for being a church that believes in the kingdom mission and believes we can do more good with our money, giving it away, than we can holding on to it. And it's uh, where Julie and I are proud to be part. And the last thing I want to do today is to have John and Amanda come up and just kind of represent their family. We want to pray over them. And so if y'all can just come down and then any of you that want to come and gather around, let's gather around them and I'll voice a prayer for them. So come on down. We thank y'all for being with us this weekend and it's been a Blessing to us for sure, and we appreciate the work you're doing for the kingdom. We want to not just give you money, but pray for you as well. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this family, the Simmons, and we thank you for their faith, for their witness, for the mission you've called them to, for their heart, for your church, and your kingdom work. Lord, thank you for using them to challenge us this weekend. Now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd fill them and their ministry with fresh power from you. Provide for their family, provide for their ministry, bring the finances they need, but also, God, bring the people that they need and the partners that they need and the encouragement that they need when times are hard. 
Uh, the Church of God, just like the rest of the churches in America, we need more kingdom victories. And so we ask humbly that you might let the table be a mighty one by your hand and by the faithfulness of these servants. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.